Judges chapter number 16. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 18. Now, we're starting sort of in the middle of the life of Samson, towards the end, but, but I mean, we're in the middle of a story, a narrative here. But I think most of us are familiar enough with the life of Samson to recognize immediately right where we're at. Verse number 18 reads this way. It says, And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand. And she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out, as at other times before, and shake myself. And he wist not that the Spirit, that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Look at verses 23 and 24. The Bible says, Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson our enemy into our hand. When the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. Now look back at verse 23. Let's read this once again, then we'll pray. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson our enemy into our hand. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the time You've given us tonight. We pray, Lord, that You would uh, be in the preaching. I pray You'd give clarity to my thoughts and my words. I pray that You'd communicate these truths through the power of the Holy Spirit to the hearts of those that are under the sound of the preached Word. I pray, Lord, tonight that Your will would be accomplished in our lives. Lord, we love You. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, there are a lot of interesting things found throughout the life of Samson and in Judges chapter number 16. We could spend a lot of time just preaching some instructive truths about Samson, about what he did and what he should have done and shouldn't have done. But I want us to notice that something appears in this chapter, and in fact, in the verse that we read twice over. That is the first time in your entire Bible that this word and that this, this topic, this object, uh, is found in the entire Word of God. And I want to give emphasis to it. Look at verse 23 again. The Bible says, Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their God. Now, Dagon is the national god of the Philistines. And you'll find on three different occasions, Dagon appears in the Bible. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time tonight uh, going through all of uh, Old Testament typology and pictures and symbolism. But suffice it to say that there were two main entities that represented the influence of the world in the life of the children of Israel. One was the nation of Egypt. Egypt was always a picture of the world in the Old Testament. Nobody ever went up to Egypt. They always went down to Egypt. Amen? I think that's part of the reason we don't need to get our Bibles out of Egypt. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, what I mean by that is these Alexandrian texts. I don't think we need to allow that into our realm of influence because Egypt has always been a place in the Bible associated with sin and death and, and wickedness. But then there was another group of people, and it was the Philistines. 
They are forever the antagonist of the children of God. And the thing that is interesting to me is that they possess this God by the name of Dagon. And uh, there are times in the Word of God when Dagon is put down, and yet Dagon seems to keep appearing in the life of the children of Israel. You see, I associate, as I look at this passage tonight, Dagon with the topic of idolatry. And by the way, let me say along with that, the Philistines were idolaters. Amen? So I associate the influence both of Dagon, their God, and of the Philistines with the idea of idolatry. Of course, we know that Dagon didn't have any influence. We know that there's no God but one God. Amen? But idolatry does not exercise its influence through supernatural power. It exercises its influence through natural power, natural influence in a person's life. And so inasmuch, listen now, as the children of Israel flirted with the Philistines, Dagon had power in their life. Now I want you to listen carefully to me tonight. We get to decide who's the God of our life. No one else gets to decide that for us. We decide who is going to be the God of our life. And inasmuch as we flirt with the world, then the God of that world, or this world we might say, will be the God of our life. Sin will be the God of our life. The flesh will be the God of our life. But we can make the choice to, instead of being an idolater, and by the way, there's idolatry today just like there was in the Old Testament. It may not manifest itself in in little idols that are placed upon a hearth, but what it does manifest itself as is as things that we place upon the mantle of our heart. We allow things to have an undue influence in our life, more so than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what kind of things they might be. Well, when I look at Dagon, and I look at what kind of an idol Dagon was, it reminds me of some of the things that oftentimes Christians let become idols in their life. And I'd like for you to notice, just by way of introduction, three simple thoughts. The name Dagon literally means a small fish. That's what the word means. It, it actually means a fish, but it's the diminutive form of the word. It means a small fish. Now, what an unusual thing for them to be uh, worshiping. I mean, I mean, I think I, if I was going to be a pagan, and if I was going to pick an animal that was going to be a god, it probably wouldn't be a goldfish. Amen? And yet they have chosen a small fish to be their god. Well, there's a reason for this. The Philistines were a seagoing, a seafaring people. It was a coastal uh, area, and they depended upon uh, the uh, trade and merchant uh, work that would come in on the sea. You see, for them, a fish was a common thing. Common thing. Everybody, when they looked at that little idol they had of Dagon, they saw something they recognized and were familiar with. Can I say, number one, that idols in our life can sometimes be common things. You know, we imagine that something has to be really spectacular for us to put it above Jesus Christ. But you'd be amazed the things that I've known of and the things that I in my own life have put in front of Jesus Christ at times. Uh, sometimes it can be uh, something, uh, you know, that is as common as your children or as common as your spouse. Sometimes it can be as common as your job. You see, what I'm saying is this. You don't have to go and hide in your closet and pray to a little figurine to be an idolater. If you let any of these common things become an idol in your life, you're an idolater just the same. I think common things can become idols in our life. I think it's also interesting that it's a small fish because it reminds me that sometimes small things can become gods in our lives. You know, listen, a lot of times, you know what happens? The Holy Ghost convicts our heart. And it might be about a small thing. But if we say no, then that thing, no matter how small it may be, has become an idol in our life. When the Spirit of God, it could be something simple. It could be the Spirit of God comes to you and says, Hey, you spoke rude to this individual. You need to ask for their forgiveness. And you buck up against that and say, No, Lord, I'm not going to do that. It's become an idol in your life. 
It could be something uh, in the way of a relationship or something in the way of, of uh, some type of entertainment or material that you have in your home or uh, on and on the list could go. But it doesn't have to be a big thing to be an idol. Uh, listen, there's a lot of folks that there's just one little small thing keeping them from going all in for Jesus Christ. They worry about maybe what a coworker might think. They worry maybe about, uh, about uh, what, I, you know, I've seen this happen with young people. Young people get on fire for God and they decide they want to throw music away that they know is not honoring the Lord and they're afraid uh, their parents don't want to let it go because of whatever money was spent on it. Just small things. It don't have to be a big thing to become an idol. It doesn't have to be some grand monumental thing in our life to get between us and Christ. Even a small thing can be an idol in our life. Then I noticed something else interesting. You know, uh, if you were to see pictures of Dagon from ancient times, it wouldn't just be a picture of a fish. In fact, Dagon, if you were to see a picture of him, was like a hybrid between a fish and a man. Uh, it's sort of similar to our idea of like what a mermaid might be. And, and in fact, the mermaid was drawn from Aphrodite and Greek gods that were uh, the female equivalent to Dagon. And so he was a mixture, a hybrid of a man and a fish. Now you say, preacher, what could that have to do with me? Well, it reminds me of this, that sometimes the gods in our life are merely polluted things. Say, so, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, I find it interesting that you and I, we worship a God-man. Amen? And we understand Jesus was not half God, half man. We understand He was 100% God, 100% man. But I think for all practical intents and purposes, what we find is this, that they took whatever was most important in their life, identified it with themselves through the idea of humanity and something being relevant to their lives, and that's what they worshipped. It's almost like it was a perversion or pollution of the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You find this over and over again. You'll find it in all sorts of modern uh, religious systems where they have their own Jesus, right? The Mormons have their own Jesus. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their own Jesus. The Muslims have their own Jesus. The Roman Catholics have their own Jesus. You know, every time the Roman Catholics want to show you Jesus, He's either uh, a babe in the lap of His mother or He's dying upon the cross. And neither of those things reflect the current present position of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are not relevant, scriptural, literal depictions of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't depict Him accurately. And so you find that a lot of times it can be something that maybe not even is bad in and of itself, but it becomes polluted and takes over. You know, there's a lot of folks that the things they idolize in their life are good things. They're not bad things. A man ought to love his family. Amen? A man should love his family, whether they're lovable or not. Amen? But there is such thing as putting your family above Christ. I believe a man ought to work. All right, good to know the Sunday night crowd agrees with that. Everybody had to stop and think for a second. God help us that we're in that day. But I believe man ought to work. The Bible believes that too. The Bible says if a man won't provide for his own family, he's worse than an infidel and is denied the faith. There's a lot of folks, their job becomes their idol. I believe you ought to love your kids. We're to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Amen? Children are in heritage from the Lord. Blessed is the man that hath his quiver full. But even your children can become an idol. You see, it doesn't have to be intrinsically evil to be elevated to a level that pollutes it and causes it to become an idol in your life. I don't know what idols might be in your life, and you probably don't know what ones might be in mine. But I think we could all acknowledge maybe there's some things that we struggle with that we allow at times to take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I want to give you three simple thoughts concerning those idols and what they can do in our life. Notice, number one, in the passage that we've read, I want us to notice the effects 
of idolatry. Now, Samson had flirted with the Philistines in both a, 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 a literal and a, a metaphorical sense. He had uh, taken this woman, Delilah, uh, to be his, and he had uh, spent time with her. He had given his heart to her. And at the end, it wound up destroying him. And I want you to notice three ways that his relationship with Delilah and with the Philistines, and it was attributed to Dagon, but by the way, we understand, like we already said, there's but one God, right? So we understand Dagon didn't do these things, but his followers did these things, and it was the influence of idolatry in his life that caused these things. Three things that idolatry does, three effects it has. Let me say, number one, that it exposes our weaknesses. Look what it says in verses 18 and 19. The Bible says, And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart. Now, most of us, we've grown up in Sunday school. We know the story. We know how that uh, Samson sort of gave her the, you know, the, the runaround on this. And he, he, he had told her, you know, well, if you, if you braid my hair together, then that's going to take my weakness. Well, if you, if you tie it to blocks of wood, that's going to you know, uh, take my weakness. Something's wrong with a man when he wakes up and his wife has tied his hair to a block of wood and he sticks around. Amen? Something's wrong. I mean, yeah, that, those people need to be at a marriage retreat somewhere. But uh, he had allowed these things to happen. And eventually, you know what happened? Eventually, Delilah coaxed from his heart the reality of what his weakness was. And he told her, said, if you, if you cut my hair, I'll be as any other man and I'll be weak. The Bible says she sent and called for the Lord of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up unto her and brought money in their hand, and she made him sleep upon her knees, and she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head, and she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. Idolatry plays upon our natural weaknesses. If you want to know what a man has a weakness for, watch what he puts in front of Christ, and you'll find out what he has a weakness for. And by the way, anything that we'll place in front of Jesus Christ is most certainly a weakness in our life. We can be defined by our worst idols. You can look and see what a man truly values. And by the way, idolatry, inasmuch as it is a, an ideal and a principle of placing something above Christ, it's like electricity. It takes the path of least resistance, Brother Charlie. It, the devil doesn't care what you idolize as long as it's not Jesus Christ. And that's the reason that, that it, is, it is so eclectic, the different idols that people have. I mean, there's people that let all kinds of things that you wouldn't never think about become an idol in their life. And the reason is because the devil doesn't care what your idol is. He knows there's one true God. And if he can get you worshiping anything but that God, then he's accomplished his task. It exposes our weakness. Let me give you a second thought tonight. Not only does uh, idolatry expose our weakness, but it enslaves our will. Notice what they did with him in verse 20. The Bible says, And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. And he wist not that the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass and he did grind in the prison house. Now this is a man that previous to this point in his life, pretty much nobody told Samson what to do. He had operated in the strength of his own will and of his own person. But idolatry broke him when armies could not break him. Let me tell you something. The devil, if he can't defeat you, he'll weaken you. And idolatry is one of the ways that he does it. Idolatry devalues the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because nothing is of the same value as the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we put anything even on the same level as him, we have by default devalued him 
in our own eyes and in the eyes of those that are around us. And what happens is we become a slave to that thing. And, you know, I think sometimes there's this, there's this knee-jerk thing. Uh, my little boy, I've, I've observed this with him. I think it's part of human nature. You can learn a lot about human nature by looking at the behavior of a child. And my little boy, if he's holding something, if I leave him alone, oftentimes he'll get bored with it and throw it down. But if I come over and try to take that from him, he'll cling it closer unto himself. You'll see it all the time with the, the little kids when they're over at the gym. They want, you know what the hottest toy of the year is? I don't know if you know this. I know Christmas is a long ways away. But the hottest toy this year, all the kids want it. That's the only thing they do want. You know what it is? Whatever the other kid has. Amen? And they will defend that thing to death if they have to. And at the end of the day, then you'll see them. They'll get distracted and turn around and just drop it. It's not that there's any value in it. It's that they don't want it taken away from them. You know, that's what happens when we become idolaters. Something that we know isn't even that important. We'll let ourselves spiritually die. And I understand we can't lose our salvation, but what I mean by that is we'll let our walk with Christ shrivel up and lay down and die before we'll give it up. You know why? There's a pride thing that goes on. A pride thing of not wanting to be told what to do. Not wanting to be told when we're wrong. Not wanting to be told that what we're doing is destructive. And so pretty soon, you know what we do? We live to keep that temple built and to keep that altar intact. And we'll do anything we have to do. You see, this, this is the way a lot of folks get way off in left field about their doctrine. It's because they have one particular little hobby horse, little, little pet doctrine that they begin to follow. And then when it's rejected by other people, they begin to build an entire system of theology to support it and uphold it. And pretty soon, I mean, listen, they can't tell you anything from any other portion of the Bible or any other topic except whatever that one singular doctrine is that they're following. They're off balance and their whole doctrine, all of what they believe about the Word of God just falls to pieces. You know, the Bible says this, a false balance is an abomination. Amen? A false balance is an abomination. We ought to preach the whole counsel of God. There should be nothing that we're scared of, and there should be nothing uh, that uh, is our uh, only place we go to. We ought to preach the whole counsel of God. And as it relates to our life, I find this, that pretty soon, and you'll see this with all kinds. I, I almost wish the Lord would help me to be a little more descriptive in what I'm trying to say, because I believe there's a truth here that you and I both need. Oftentimes, it doesn't even have to be an important thing. But it becomes the centerpiece of our life and our existence. We take it and we stuff it away and hide it away from the world and nobody knows about it but us and God. And we think if we can hold out on God, then we'll get away with it. And pretty soon we'll do anything we have to do to prop that thing up and to keep it going. I'm talking about sin in our lives. We'll do anything that we have to do to keep it going. It enslaves our wills. Let me give you a final thing uh, from Judges 16. I believe not only does it expose our weakness and enslave our wills, but look at verses 23 and 24. The Bible says, Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer great sacrifice unto Dagon their God, and to rejoice, for they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand." When the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. Let me say that idolatry, if left unchecked, will extinguish our witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Samson had been known as a conqueror. He had been known as a victor. To the Philistines, he had been known as an enemy. 
One of the greatest passages, I believe, in the Word of God, most illuminating passages, is uh, that passage when those seven sons of Siva decide they're going to go and cast out devils in Jesus' name. And they, they uh, said, I adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul serveth. And that devil looks at him and says, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who art thou? Uh, the devils in hell know Paul's name and knew Paul's name. And in the same way, the Philistines, they knew Samson's name. He had been a great and mighty warrior for the cause of God and for the people of God. And now look at him. He's just another slave at the bottom of the prison house, strapped to the grinding wheel and whiling away and wasting away. At the end of the day, he was not a bright and shining light at this moment. Now, we know the rest of the story. Samson, we know how that God did get glory out of his life ultimately. But what I'm saying is this. When idolatry had its way, it hushed the witness that Samson had been. Idolatry will do the same thing to you. You know why that is? Let me just be real practical. We're going to have a fireside chat. Is that okay? You know why? Because when we have idols in our life, we know we're wrong. We know. I think one of the reasons that we have so much trouble communicating our position effectively as believers is we play by the world's rules. This idea that everything's uh, relative and nobody really knows and so on and so forth. I'm just going to talk to you like adults tonight. If you've got sin in your life, you know you have sin in your life. All right? We know when we're wrong with God. Amen? We know that. I mean, listen, a lost man ain't never heard the gospel. He might not realize he needs to be... But uh, we're, we're saved people not. At least I believe everybody in this room is. I, I trust they are. We know if we've got something in our life between us and God. And here's the thing. What happens is uh, we no longer act in a bold way for Christ because we feel like a hypocrite. Because we know at the end of the day, even though nobody else may know, we know God knows and we know that we know. And it gets to the place where we're a slave to that thing. You know what we do? We do just what Samson did. We put our head down and just keep walking. We do nothing to fight the influence of hell and the devil in this world. Because after all, we're just a hypocrite anyway. tells you something about how much we value whatever we're idolizing. That we'd rather live the life that Samson lived, with his head shaved, with his eyes plucked out, strapped to a grinding wheel, than give up whatever that thing is. I'll tell you this. I bet Delilah didn't look near as pretty after Samson was in the bottom of the temple of Dagon. I bet she wasn't near as desirable after idolatry had had its way with him. I bet he regretted that he ever allowed her in his life. But the reality is it was too late at that point. There are some things, I want you to listen now, there are some things we don't get back. We just don't get back. God's a forgiving God, amen? But there are some things we don't get back. And so we better value them while we've got them. Because if we let them slip away, they're never going to return to us. Turn over with me to First Chronicles chapter 10. We see the effects of idolatry in Judges chapter 16. But I believe we could look at First Chronicles chapter 10, look at a couple verses and see something about the end of idolatry. What will idolatry ultimately do in our lives? If left unchecked, if left undealt with, and let me tell you, that's something we're bad about in this day. We don't want to deal with problems. We want to run from problems. Something. Listen, we get wrong with God, and we, we'd just rather stay wrong than God, with God than swallow our pride and get right with God. And if we let this thing of idolatry fester and percolate in our life, what can we expect to happen? Well, many years have passed. Saul is now on the throne of the nation of Israel. And wouldn't you know it that Dagon shows up again in the Word of God. Look down at verse number 8. Now, Saul has been in a battle with the Philistines. And Saul has been killed. 
Uh, he has fallen on his own sword rather than falling into the hands of the Philistines. And whenever Saul fell, the people of Dagon were found there. And it says in verse number 8, It came to pass on the morrow when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen in Mount Gilboa. And when they had stripped him, they took his head and his armor and sent into the land of the Philistines round about to carry tidings unto their idols and to the people. And they put his armor in the house of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Notice with me tonight the persistence of Dagon. He just keeps showing up, don't he? You know why? Because if you don't deal with it, it'll keep showing up. You may, listen, you, you may, and we're going to talk a little bit here in a moment about how to deal with idolatry. But if you don't deal with it, if you don't put a nail in its coffin, if you don't crucify it and give it to Christ, then you may be a little better at some times and a little worse at other times, but it'll always keep popping back up in your life. And by the way, that's true of any sin. If we don't deal with it head on, listen, I, you know the problem with our country today? I know I come here to fix every problem, amen, but you know the problem with our country today? We forgot what repentance is. We've just plumb forgot what repentance is. Somebody does something wrong, they don't ever repent of it. They just keep on going and expect everybody to pretend like it never happened. That's part of the problem with the day that we're living. By the way, that's the problem in, in churches. Amen? People want to live however and expect everybody to just ignore it and pretend like it never happened. Let me tell you something. Not only is that bad for the local church, not only is that bad for other believers, but that's bad for the person that's sinned. Because what's the best for them is that they repent and turn their heart back to Christ and get their life back on track. See, if you don't deal with this thing, it's going to keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. Notice not only the persistence of it, but notice the pillaging of it. What did they do? The Bible says that they came and they stripped the armor off of Saul. Here this man is laying dead. There's nothing left of him. His life has left him. But idolatry wasn't done with him yet. It came and it stripped his armor and it took his head. If you leave this thing, whatever it is in your life that's between you and Christ, if you leave that there, it will leave you bankrupt at the end of your life. I'm not talking about the numbers in your bank account or the car in your driveway. I'm talking about spiritual currency. I'm talking about your faith. I'm talking about your commitment, your separation, your consecration. Just that one little thing, if it becomes a wedge between you and Christ... If it becomes a God in your life, that God is only going to grow bigger, not smaller. And eventually it will take up every square inch of your life and leave you with nothing left. Sin's a dangerous thing. It's a vile thing. It's a destructive thing. And don't think your sin is any different than anyone else's sin. We see the pillaging of this. Notice the proclamation of it. <laughs> The Bible says they sent word throughout all of the land. Old Saul, he's dead now. He's been defeated. And what did they say? They said it was Dagon that threw him down in battle. And we know that was not the case, don't we, Brother Charlie? We know if we were to read a little further back that the Philistines did not kill Saul. Saul was uh, trapped. He was getting ready to die. And he said, I'm not going to die by the hand of the Philistines. He turned to his armor bearer. He said, thrust me through with a sword. And the armor bearer said, no, I'm not going to do it. So the Bible says that Saul fell on his own sword. Boy, isn't that instructive? Because at the end of the day, after idolatry has destroyed us, it's not really the idol that ever destroyed us. We've destroyed ourselves by refusing to turn back to the Lord. 
But word went out, and what was the word? <laughs> the word was old Saul. He wasn't much of a warrior after all, was he? Well, you know, that's how people talk when a man falls. David was spiritual enough to not want it told in Gath. Uh, David was spiritual enough to not want the heathen to be able to praise over it. But even David could not quiet the rejoicing of the pagan armies. At the end of the day, let me tell you something. You let sin take root in your life, and you let something become an idol in your life, it will catch up with you. It will destroy you. And it won't just destroy your life then. It will destroy your testimony thereafter. You'll become identified by it. Boy, there's no telling. I, I, you know, I was a youth pastor for a while. I, I've been to our church camp and, and other church camps. I've heard preachers preach to young people untold numbers of times. I, there's no telling how many young people that the only time their name is ever mentioned anymore is as a sermon illustration of what happens when you walk away from God. At the end of the day, that's what they're remembered by is the tragic end of their life. And they don't have to be that way. Amen. Uh, for any of us, it don't have to be that way. Well, everybody in here ought to be a sermon illustration, but we can choose whether we're a good one or a bad one. Amen? But at the end of the day, if you let idolatry take your, rob your testimony, rob your strength, rob your walk with Christ, then that's what you're going to be identified by. The lost will look and say, if that's what a Christian is, they're no better than me. If that's what a church-going person is, they're no better than me. That's what a believer in Jesus is. They're no better than me. Word spread around that the idol had finally caught up with Saul. Let me give you one final thought and I'll be done tonight. Turn with me over to 1 Samuel chapter 5. How do we deal with idolatry? I think this is probably the most important part of this message this evening. Because here's the thing. Most of us that are here tonight, we know idolatry is wrong. We know if there's an idol in our life. We just don't know what to do with it and how to deal with it. Well, the Bible gives us the answer, as it always does. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, we have a, another instance of Dagon being mentioned in Scripture. Now, this is the one most people, I think, are familiar with when they hear the name Dagon. And look at verse number 1. The Bible says this, "...and the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod." Ashdod is a Philistine city. "...when the Philistines took the ark of God..." They brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord, and they took Dagon and set him in his place again. And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off Upon the threshold, only the stump of Dagon was left to him. I want to give you three simple thoughts about how you deal with idolatry. Let me just say it this way. We've talked about the effects of idolatry and the end of idolatry. Let me give you a few thoughts on the eviction of idolatry. How do we get idols out of our life? Well, let me say, number one, the remedy is found in verses 1 and 2. And what is the remedy? Uh, look at verse 2. The Bible says, when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon had sat there in his temple just fine until the presence of God showed up. When the presence of God showed up, Dagon just couldn't handle it. You know, here is the problem. We want to take that thing that we've let become an idol out of our life and leave a big old empty hole. And pretty soon we find something else or we just go back to the same old thing to fill it once again. Uh, anybody will tell you this, that if you're going to uh, quit a bad habit, the best thing to do is to substitute it with a good habit, right? Well, the thing, same thing is true in the spiritual realm. The only remedy 
for idolatry in our life is to get in the presence of God and let the presence of God get in us and replace that thing with a true and righteous walk with Christ. I don't care what your idol is. He can't stand up next to the ark of of God. I don't care what it is that you think is so valuable. It's not as valuable as God is. And notice it's interesting. There's a lot of things that could could have been placed there, but it was the presence of God. Now, here's part of the problem. It was not the commitment to the presence of God that got rid of Dagon, but it was the presence of God itself that got rid of Dagon. It wasn't just the standards of God. It wasn't just the Old Testament. And by the way, in that Ark of the Covenant, there was a copy of the Old Testament. Amen. Uh, That's not to say that the presence of God does not include some statutes, but it was not just a copy of the the, uh, Word of God, but it was the very presence of God. You see, we've got to start spending time with God and let God deal with our idols in our life. Our problem is we want to just commit to ourselves that we're going to quit doing this or quit doing that or quit going here or quit going there, whatever it might be. But the reality is we're under bondage to that thing. God has to do that in our life. And so the only thing we can do is give that thing to God. And I think that's found in this passage. We see uh, not only the remedy, the remedy is the presence of God. Only God can deal with that. But I want you to notice the removal of these idols. How did this happen? Look at verse number 3. The Bible says, And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. Let me say, the first thing we have to do to get rid of our idols is we have to surrender them to God. We have to surrender. We have to give that thing to God. Not just try to throw it away ourselves. But you you say, preacher, what's the difference? Well, here's the difference. Trying to deal with it ourselves is where we sit in the pew and say, all right, Lord, you're right. I'm just going to do better tomorrow. Surrendering it is where we find a place around the altar and say, God, I can't do it. Lord, I'm unable to do it. God, I'm not going to try to do it. I'm going to ask you to do it because I know I'm unable to. That's not to say that our will should not be, uh, should not contribute to the will of God as well. It's not to say we shouldn't try. But it's to say this, we need to recognize that without God, all the trying we may have won't get the job done. And we need to go and we need to lay it before the presence of Almighty God and say, Lord, take it away. God, take it away. You know what that does? That tethers us to His altar day in and day out. As we have to come to the Lord, when we begin to struggle with that thing again, we come to the Lord and say, Lord, take it away. I'm begging, I'm pleading. The difference then is, listen, we're not just depending on our strength. We're waiting on an answer to prayer. And that keeps us trusting in Him. Notice the second thing. This is interesting. We see that the first thing we have to do is surrender our idol. We have to give it to the Lord. We have to commit ourselves that we want this thing gone from our life, that we're not going to cling to There's a lot of us that are asking God to take something away that we refuse to let go of. We need to surrender it to the Lord. We need to say, Lord, please take it away from me. We do everything we can to surrender it to Him. But then notice what happens in verse 4. It says, And when they arose early on the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Now, I'll confess to you, I like, sometimes I like to climb in my Bible and just laugh at how funny the circumstances must have looked. Don't you imagine how dumbfounded they were 
when they walked into this temple and they see this God. And, and I don't know, but I would imagine probably it was a fairly large idol. I don't know that, but uh, they are in Ashdod, which was the principal uh, Philistine city. They are in the temple of Dagon. Uh, evidently, this was a place that was big enough to hold thousands because whenever Samson pulled the temple in, it killed thousands of people. I'm betting it was a pretty big statue. And they find this thing laying on its, on its face, except it has no face. Its head is gone, and its palms are gone. Now, here's what I chuckle at. How silly do you think the fella felt whose job it was to glue the head and hands back on that statue? What a stinging indictment of the impotence and silliness of following that God. You see, here's the thing we have to do. We have to surrender that thing to God. We have to surrender our idols. Then, number two, we have to shatter our idols. You know how Paul says it? He says we are to give no occasion to the flesh. If there's something you struggle with, then, of course, you need to give that thing to God. But if it's something you can get out of your house, get it out of your house. If it's something you can get out of your life, get it out of your life. Now, I'm not saying if, you, if your kids are your idols, don't walk off and leave them. If your spouse is your idol, don't walk off and leave them. But I am saying this, that we need to take all the necessary precautions. We need to make sure that if Dagon's going to get set back up again, somebody's going to have to glue his hands and his head on, and it's not going to be an easy job. You see what I'm saying? We have to make sure, we have to make it hard on the devil to gain that foothold back in our life once again. We have to shatter that thing before the Lord. Then notice finally what the result of it was. We didn't read it yet, but look in our text here in 1 Samuel chapter 5. What happened? You see, before he just kept turning up. But after they give him to the Lord, so to speak, the Bible says, verse number 5, Therefore neither the priests of Dagon nor any that come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod unto this day. You know what happened? When God's presence made itself known, There were still idols in Philistine, but forever, ever again, the temple of Dagon was a changed place. And there were some places where idolatry wouldn't set its foot anymore. You know what happens when we give our idols to God? We're always going to struggle with idols. We're never going to get total victory of never having to struggle with with keeping Christ the priority. I hate to tell you that, but for the rest of your life, you're always going to have to fight to keep Christ the priority. But inasmuch as you surrender these things to the Lord, there can be some places in your life where idolatry won't set its foot again. Some things that you have gotten some ultimate victory over. Some things that you have yielded to God. And the devil just stays away from because he knows that God has done too mighty of a work in that matter for him to ever gain any foothold again. You see, when God does something, God does a lasting work. God does a lasting work. That doesn't mean there aren't some other areas we might need God to work, but when God does something, it's a lasting work. And can I just put it this way? When you get a taste of God's presence, nothing else will do. Once the presence of God has been there, That place was forever changed. God's so holy, He could change the rules in a pagan temple just by showing up. You know, our body's the temple of the Holy Ghost. And it's not a pagan temple, and it shouldn't be a pagan temple. But just as the Lord could sanctify the threshold of Dagon so that not even a pagan priest would set their foot on it, I believe God can sanctify our life and set us aside and gain some some long-term victories for His glory. 
if we'll just take these things and yield them. Quit hanging on to it. You say, but preacher, I'm afraid if I let it go, I'll go back to it. Well, you ain't never going to get away from it if you don't let it go in the first place. Don't worry about three weeks down the road. Worry about the next three minutes and surrender it to God. Commit. Listen, God's not asking you to get rid of it. He's saying, you let me get rid of it. Come to the Lord and deliver it to Him and say, Lord, I don't know how, I don't know if I'll be able to, but God, I need you to change this about me. And I'll trust you to accomplish it, Lord. And if I fail tomorrow, I'll come back to you again tomorrow. If I fail the day after, I'll come back to you the day after to ask you and beg you to take it away once again. It's interesting. Dagon didn't get gone the first day. Right? first day he just fell over. The second day he was destroyed. Sometimes it takes more than once. Sometimes it takes time. But if we'll surrender these things to the Lord and ask Him to take them away, if you fail, so what? You're like the rest of us. Come back to the Lord and ask Him to do it again in your heart and in your life. Our heads bowed with our eyes closed.